HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers. Learn more at square.com slash go slash in the sauce. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Sana Javeri Kadri, founder of Diaspora Co., the spice company on a mission to build a better spice trade. Sana started Diaspora in 2017 to create a radically new, equitable vision of how consumers buy spices. Now, Diaspora is offering India's freshest heirloom and single-origin spices directly from partner farms. They've swept up numerous accolades for its organically farmed direct-trade turmeric and have many more spices coming soon. Welcome, Sana. Hi, Allie. Thanks so much for having me. I am really glad you're here and or there or with me. <laughs> um, and I do think I, this this isn't going to be um, released probably until another week or so. But mm-hmm. we are sort of coming off of a week of massive, um, I hope, social change, yeah. um, some real social upheaval and um, demand for not only um, social justice, but I think sort of a a new lens on looking at all of our sort of systems, um, you know, social and political here. And it's, I'm thinking that it's, I always love when the guest kind of is is a good guest for the time in a way, Um, which I think that you are in a lot of ways, because I think that the remnants of the colonial system um, are not just in India, but they are certainly here as well. Um, Yeah, I think think that the term um, decolonize has never had more worth than it has but right now. And I think actually, you know, when I started the company um, three years ago, it it held so much weight for me personally, that word. And it was like my charge forward. And then 
as the company grew, I, I almost feel like I shied away from it more and yeah. more. Yeah. Um, and and today, more than ever, I feel reinvigorated to to hold that word and the the act of decolonizing to high and and let yep. that kind of lead the way. I think that's a good point that you bring up and an honest one too, you know, because as brands, mm-hmm. you know, as humans and people, there are certain things that are not complicated, you know, black mm-hmm. lives matter. You know, I think all of us agree. Well, maybe not all of us, but, <laughs> but most of us agree that. One of the matter. Agree. <laughs> right. Um, you know, that certain things are just so. And yet when you are a brand and you're representing a brand, all of a sudden things seem to feel more complicated. And right. and and we get we get nervous about language and we get nervous mm-hmm. about backlash and investors right. and and I you know, I'm I'm a part of that too. Um mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting that that you're sort of saying now you're reinvigorated to kind of hold on to that language. And you know right. what? If it offends you or if it scares you or if it makes you uncomfortable, then you're not my it's consumer. Not for you. You're not my yeah. buyer. You're not my investor. Um, and that's something that I think all of us, you know, hopefully should hold on to. And, and especially, and this is what's kind of exciting, especially for those of us that are very early. So we don't have a board of directors yet necessarily. So we can make sure that when we build that board of directors, we're building it in an equitable way and we're building it with voices that, you know, maybe wouldn't be heard otherwise. And we're still small and we haven't made a, you know, hiring practices mandate yet. And so all it's like, we're the companies actually that have the opportunity, I think, to build to, it. To, yeah. And like to metabolize to build it into changes. DNA. Yeah. And to yeah. do it the right way. And we don't have to, you know, completely dismantle a system that's already broken because we don't have a system yet, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm thrilled you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's my long way of saying hello. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I'd love to get into, I mean, I know a little bit. I know that you grew up in Mumbai. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your, you know, what was your childhood like? What did you think about wanting to be doing right about yeah. now in your life? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a family of architects. Uh, both my parents are architects. So is my grandfather. Um, but they all run separate practices. Uh-huh. Um, but, so I grew up, you know, in a family of entrepreneurs, too, right. where I saw my mom starting her practice from my bedroom, which was right. our second bedroom in the house. and. Uh, her dad at some point told her that helping her buy an office was not a good enough investment for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, finding her way to buying her own office only when I was, I think about six or seven, wow. so 10 years into her practice. Um, and I think that I, I knew early on, like starting at about 16, that I wanted to work in the food industry. Um, I left Mumbai when I was 16. I got a scholarship to go to the United World Colleges, which are pretty fantastic social experiment. It's yeah. 200 people from 100 different countries. Wow. Yeah, it's it, it, it really did make me who I am. Of course, it's not without fault. Like I'm finding that today the UWC alumni page is you know, having the difficult conversations that the rest of the world is having. Yep. Um, but it but it really shaped me and shaped my identity. And that brought me to the U.S. for college. 
Um, so I knew that I wanted to work in the food industry, but I, I didn't know anything about the American food industry. Um, I actually largely thought that I would get my education and go back to India. Um, but coming out was one part of not wanting to go back to India. Um, I wasn't sure how to reconcile my queer identity, um, with my world back home, um, that I met my partner and, and now I've stayed. But I also think that a lot of my education into the food industry was one of feeling like, wait, I don't belong. Like, yeah. yes, I'm a woman of color, but I, I, grew, I didn't grow up in a racialized society. Like I grew up in a society where I was the same color as everybody else. Yeah. Um, so I was learning that very quickly. Um, I was working front of house positions where often the entire kitchen was POC. Yeah. The entire front of house was white. And then I would be kind of the in-between token because I, yeah. uh, I had the, I guess, privileged way to talk and speak that in a way that was close enough to whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I, yeah, I've spent a long time trying to figure out where I fit into the industry. And finally, four years ago, I realized that the, the one of the places that I could make impact was was straddling both worlds, was straddling the world of India and Indian agriculture um, and that of um, holding space for people who look like me in the American food industry. Yeah. So I think diaspora as a global import-export farm-to-table supply chain, which is such a mouthful, <laughs> um, was, was, was founded um, also to create space for me and feeling yeah. like there was there was no space for me otherwise where I could truly be myself. I think that that, I mean, you've summed it up really beautifully, but I, I think that that is a common thread among founders in the food world, especially the food world. It's like everyone's, everyone has this like just like this heartstring attached to something yeah. about nourishing and being nourished. And, yeah. and, and a lot of us, I think, you know, people in food and beverage and certainly founders, at least in like the food space, I would say, you know, mm-hmm. we, we know we, we tapped into the power of food and, and eating mm-hmm. and being together and that like commonality and communality. Um, and yet there's also something in a lot of us that felt a little under nurtured. Right. And it's like, it's this combination that makes for, um, I think a lot of those of us starting our own things or, you know, building our own spaces, you know, where they don't call it family meal for nothing, right? Like we're all exactly. kind of trying to create something that in a way we, we've been missing, we but, we, yeah. but we didn't see, exactly. Um, and so you, I mean, basically it's, it's brilliant. Like I obviously, like, you know, I do a lot of reading before I do the interview. (laughs) You Um, did do a lot of research. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I think it makes for better questions. I I don't want to like spend the first half an hour being like, so tell me, you know, um, but I think, you know, I have this really, really vivid image of you popping into a place ordering a turmeric latte with sort of like a question mark bubble above your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically deciding like, okay, now I have a thousand thoughts and a thousand plans mm-hmm. that are coming out of this one. So I'm sure that's not exactly what happened, but that's <laughs> yeah. the cartoon version in my brain of what happened in your life. So maybe you can tell the actual experience. Yeah. Um, so I think the first part there is 
I didn't grow up here, so I didn't grow up with the Indian American experience of my food being made fun of, or I didn't have concrete thoughts as yet about appropriation because I hadn't had that experience of my food mm-hmm. being appropriated. And so when the turmeric latte trend hit in 2016, um, it was my my first reckoning with this thing of like, wait, I grew up consuming this spice in every form. Right. The turmeric latte has existed in my culture forever. Um, what is this latte right. <laughs> thing? Right. Um, and I tried it and it was disgusting. Um, (laughs) and I think initially, I I think, I think I actually thank myself for choosing to, instead of being angry and upset, which, which I would have been completely within my right to have been um, saying, um, where's this coming from? Like who is supplying this? Um, if so many more people are suddenly consuming turmeric, like Who's growing it? And I couldn't, right. knowing, knowing what I did about the Indian agricultural system, about the spice trade, having studied it to some degree in my as part of my thesis in my undergraduate, um, I couldn't imagine. So at this at the time, just for some context, I was working at Byright in San Francisco, which is like the farm-to-table grocery store. Right. Um, you know, we uh, Byright is one of the few grocery stores that will bring in Masumito peaches and bring in the best of Californian citrus. So I knew the like, ethical standard that's held for like high-end domestic on the table mm-hmm. and for produce and I I had a hunch that like whatever turmeric guineas culture was consuming like is not meeting that standard right. and why is that okay I don't think right. I had fully fleshed um answers to any of those things but I had a lot of questions well I I have a question and I want to go back yeah. to something because it's something you know I think about all the time um and this is as good of a time as any to ask you, but I, I'm curious about the line between appropriation and appreciation. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially, you know, I, I'm sure you know, our sauces are globally influenced. It's something totally. we're very proud of. It's something, you know, in the cooking school, we've always said, you know, buy local, eat global. I think yeah. that, you know, we do our best to... um explain and, you know, discuss origins. And, you know, as you know, a lot of origins are very complicated in and of themselves. So it's, it's stepping into a landmine in a lot of ways, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but where, where do you think, how, how do you think about the appropriation Appropriation versus appreciation? appreciation? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's actually, in in the past few weeks, that's something I've been thinking about a lot because I, like many of us, cook out of a global pantry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I use our turmeric, but I also use tahini, but I also drink my matcha every morning. Right. And and where where do our politics lie about about a global pantry? And, and in, for a long time, I had more questions than answers. And I think a big question that I had was. When, when media folks come to me and they ask mm-hmm. me for a recipe, I am expected to give them a recipe that's based in my Indian origin and, and of being of Indian descent. It, time and time again, if I have if I contribute a recipe that's different from that, say, you know, I spent two years of my life in Italy. I'm right. I, Italian food is my comfort food. Um, Korean food is maybe my favorite food in the world. Um, I get a lot of pushback on that. And mm-hmm. 
at first I felt, well, that's okay. Cause like I can speak to this and I want a Korean writer or right. um, a Japanese writer to speak to their, to their food. Um, but white people are given a very different privilege when it comes to that. White people are allowed to cook and contribute. Pick and choose. And from yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Because quote unquote, they have no culture and you know who I'm referencing here. Yes. Um, and, um, <laughs> and I think that that, that is the problem. Like it, it's that these, this idea of the global pantry, whilst we all might be able to buy a global uh, pantry, right. it only applies to a few people to be able to talk about it. Right. Um, Interesting. You know, nobody is asking me where I buy my matcha from. Right. A lot of people, like, but but is a white food personality being asked that constantly? Yes. Right. So I think, I think we have to question who gets to talk about a global pantry if we're all going to have a global pantry and then start to question where our blind spots are. You know, I had a big blind spot around um, Palestinian cuisine. Yeah. I I feel, uh, I mean, I, I'm a big proponent for Jewish cuisine, but like yep. it, there, there's comp, there's so many complications there. Yep. And so Absolutely. if I'm going to talk about decolonization of food and I, I want a global pantry, it has to, it has to be intersectional. Yeah. So, yeah. I can go on for ages, but no, we can. I mean, I think it's no, it's a, it's a it's an ongoing discussion yeah. among my team and me. You know, you have very little space on an actual package to discuss the complexities of chimichurri, where mm-hmm. Uruguayans believe it's theirs, Argentinians believe it's theirs, and we're not even mm. talking about tahini right now. And we're right. not, you know, like it's right. we're just talking. You know, I mean, th- because. The, because the reality is, is that, you know, and this is where kind of we're going to get to with, mm-hmm. you know, things are grown, you know, nature doesn't have borders, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that goes back to sort of like the imperialism, the, yeah. the lines that divide a country from another country, a region from another region are completely man-made and mm-hmm. made largely in part by colonizers colonizers and people in power who get to decide who gets to be in one country and who gets to be in another um which which leads me to when you did go back because you know once you started asking those questions you know Mm -hmm. are the standards for the you know the spices the same standards as they are for the produce it led you back to India for, totally. you know, half a year and mm-hmm. you did a deep dive into the industry. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, A, on a personal level, what that was like and B, yeah. um, you know, it seems like you learned a lot um, mm-hmm. outside of yourself about sort of the spice trade. I mean, it's it's a long, old, yeah. very <laughs> anachronistic uh, system and yeah. um, I'm curious sort of the takeaways and, you yeah. know, what, what you learned and, and how it made you feel about, you know, you. Yeah, um, so many questions. I'll try to I get know. at them one, one after the other. Yeah. So I think the first part is now with my, like, 2020 um, vision looking back, um, I can see how sourcing as a practice has so much power so Mm -hmm. like when we talk about decolonization what we're really saying is who are you like who is this empowering can you can you distribute resources back to the to the roots and so sourcing for especially in the cpg industry like sourcing for a chai blend or a chimichurri like 
Mm-hmm. That's such an easy way to give back power to origins. Yeah. Um, even, even when, you know, you don't have the space on a shelf or, or on your packaging, um, truly like walking the talk or talking the work or whatever that line is, um, is the work. That's the work of decolonization is ethical sourcing. Um, and I think in terms of me going back to India, um, you know, going back to India with no job as a 23 year old who was given the world's best education, um, really felt like defeat. Um, (laughs) it was a personal low point. Um, my Mm. parents were very much like what, what is this girl doing? What is she going to do now? Right. Um, they were Did very you plan supportive. on moving back to, you You didn't plan on moving back to live. You planned on going to learn about No, you know, I or, had no idea. Right, I, I you didn't had, know. I quit my job. I had this idea that I would research this. Um, I didn't feel emboldened or confident enough to start a business. Um, yeah. I was 22. I had yeah. no money. Um, I initially, actually, I, I pitched it to Roads and Kingdoms, um, the publication, as like, I want to do this as a photographic story. Mm. Um, and the more I started, le- and then nobody, I, I didn't know how to pitch. I didn't know how to write a piece. Um, mm. And nobody was answering my emails. I was writing right. to scientists. I was writing to farmers. Nobody was getting back to me. Um, so I was on one hand, getting more and more exasperated, feeling like, well, maybe this isn't a story. Um, and maybe I really don't know what I'm doing with my life. And on the other hand, feeling like I ha- there, there, there must be something I could do within the food system. Right. Um, and for me, the breakthrough was on a whim flying to the Indian Institute of Spices Research in Kerala. <laughs> how, um, did you, how did you decide to go there? I mean, first of all, it's very cool <laughs> That there is sort of a, you know a, a, a spices institute, research institute, um, yeah. And uh, how they did? Were you just like, "Hi, I'm Sana. I'd like to come to see your institute," or you know, I I think I, I pitched it as like, "I'm I'm writing a story. I'm researching this." I was young enough that like seeing research and letting people assume that I was a student, a student. was okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I was fine with that assumption. I had no issues if I got the information that I wanted. Right. Um, but then they just straight up wouldn't respond to me. I mean, I called Dr. Preset, who's now a colleague and a friend. I called oh. his office for, for maybe three months repeatedly right. um, to no response. And I, finally, I bought that flight thinking, you know, the worst they can do is turn me away. Um, and I'll have visited an Indian city that I've never visited before. Um but they, and I think you know this story, but like they welcomed me heartily and graciously yeah. and proceeded to spend the next three hours just educating me Amazing. and let me stay for a couple of days and trail them around and um, working in collaboration with the Indian Institute of Spices Research has been, or ISR as I call them, like has been so gratifying and it's it's allowed me to do my work in sourcing because I'm suddenly connected to yeah. A network of agricultural yeah, food amazing. workers, scientists, government employees across the country. It's amazing. Sana, before we take a quick break, I want to just touch on something you said. Yeah. You said um, you had no confidence to start the business. You were 22 and you had no money. And I just want to say to the founders that are listening out there, I was <laughs> 40 and I had quite a bit of money and I had no confidence either. So it the it takes it you're not going to have a ton of confidence no matter right. what. But right. the next part of your story was 
but I called them every day for three weeks and I got on a plane and figured what's the worst that can happen. They'll turn me away. So it's that. It's, there's a mistake out there. It's an assumption that somehow founders have this confidence. And if I don't have that, right. that means that I'm not really an entrepreneur. Right. That's not what we have. We have the thing that makes us call someone every day for three months and get on a plane and figure that, you know, what's the worst, you know, that can happen. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the word for that is, but... I think it's grit. Yeah, maybe it's grit. In a way. All right, we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with Sana Javeri Kadri, founder of Diaspora. This episode is brought to you by Square. Square has been working hard to help restaurants and businesses adapt by providing tools they need to be nimble and keep customers safe. One of these tools is Square Online Store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery. When we decided to open the cooking school back up as a contactless provision shop, Square made it super easy. All we had to do was plug in our offerings and pricing. We didn't need to contact anyone at Square. It was that intuitive. But I did get a call from a customer rep asking me how I was doing and how he could help. That meant a lot. It's totally free to set up your online menu and pricing and easy to keep updated. If you're already using Square Point of Sale, you can automatically import your whole menu online. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash in the sauce. Okay, we're back. So, Sana, you went to this three-day immersion on the spice trade. Um, And, you know, obviously colonization is gone, I guess, in the same way that gone and I would put it in like a lighter font in some sort of Uh italics. I don't know exactly. Um, Uh But basically, it's been corporatized. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. farmers aren't fairly compensated. Very few ever have been. Um, tell What did you learn that was sort of like, okay, I know how to, I can fix this or I can get in here. Yeah. Or like what triggered the like, okay, this is going to be I'm a business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One was these scientists taking little old me seriously and being Mm -hmm. like, and explaining that despite all of their work, I mean, the research institution, I think has been around for almost 30 years now. um, They had never been able to create a link between farmers and the market. Right. They they work with farmers nationwide. They do really God's work. um, But but they weren't able to understand how the, the market worked. And I was sitting there thinking, wait, I know how to mar- the market works. Like, I literally understand the American, like, yep. artisanal farm-to-table food system perfectly. That That's what I know. Yeah. Um, so that was the first alarm bell that went off in my head of like, wait, could it be you? And right. then the second one was um, Dr. Prasad introduced me to Prabhu, who is now my partner farmer. Um, and... Again, like I had a few phone conversations with him and didn't get much out of them. It was hard to understand each other. Um, 
And I just got on a plane and went to go visit him. Right. And one of was he, he like, "Who are you, young woman?" Like, was he confused <laughs> by your? First of all, for some reason, I don't know why all of this is feeling very much like it could be in like a graphic novel. Starting, it would be a with, good like, <laughs> starting with like the question mark above your head while you're drinking the ugly, like horrible turmeric latte to like getting on a plane to like the expression of like all of the people in suits when you arrive in front of them to then you hopping on another plane to the farmer who looks at you quizzically. Like I can't, I'm just picturing the whole thing like drawn out. I don't, it was all I, very comical in yeah, retrospect. Yes. I mean, it's great. At the time, it was just my lived experience. Right. But <laughs> my, my partner farmer actually, imme- Prabhu immediately mentioned to me that he was expecting to need me to be much older. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I'm a decade younger than him. So, right. And he considers himself, you know, the young guy in, in the farming <laughs> industry. Right. Um, so he was very shocked. He picked me up from the airport and <laughs> I could tell that he was doing a double take. Right. Um, but I think as a himself, as a young person and as somebody who had been ostracized for his beliefs in mm-hmm. organic farming and natural farming, um, he took a chance on me yeah. where Amazing. one of the one of the first things he said to me was, you know, madam, if you don't believe in the way that I farm and like how I take care of my soil, then then I would not sell to you. And I was like, "What? Right. Um, take all my money. I'll like, I'll buy it all." Right. <laughs> um, and 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 by the time I, I visited him, the idea was already churning in my head. So I had let him know that you know I might be interested in buying. Right. Um, but again, I had no brand, no plan, no nothing. Yeah. Um, I had three k from my 2016 tax refund. So mm-hmm. you know the year that you were first, you're a full time student for half the year, and then you're a full time employee for half the year. You get taxed the heaviest. You get the biggest refund that year, which is why I had a glorious 3K to my name. I thought it was hot shit. Right. Um, And and then I borrowed 8K from my dad. Um, He thought he was never going to see that money again. Sure. Um, Yeah. And and I put that 11K together essentially to buy – his 350 kilograms from this from Mr. Prabhu. Okay. Um, and I guess then started the hard work of really being like, oh, I guess I, I guess I'm starting a business now. So and- so you had did you like did you buy it in spirit or did you like get on a plane with like turmeric? I, like I, with- no 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 I didn't get on a plane with turmeric. Okay. He, All right. Ha- when I visited him, he hadn't even harvested it yet. Okay. So you kind of um, marked so- your your yeah. little. Corner. I just okay. I paid him in advance. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I said, here, here's some money. I want it. Um, and then I went back to Mumbai and basically sat at the the Spice Board of India, which is the in, import export wing for spices, right. um, for days, and was like, well, what do I do now? Like, how do I how do I get all this paperwork? Um, yeah. It, it was a lot of people tell me, wow, you know, Diaspora came together so quickly. And I think what they don't know is that from February through August of 2017, that is the only thing I was doing. Yeah. It's just that nobody knew who I was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's that's fine. But but people need to know that there was six months of full-time work with, you know, that went on yeah. in creating Diaspora. And a lot of thought work of like, what, what am I trying to build and why? Why am I the best person to do this? Um, and the answer kept coming back that, there are very few people in the position of privilege that I am, right? And which is why I should do it. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I can't, I can't honestly think. I've never met you, but I can't think of anyone better than you 
just <laughs> from speaking to you for, you know, 25 minutes. Like, it seems like it literally was the perfect thing for mm-hmm. you to do. But I guess my question then is like, okay, so you, you've now bought, you know, you've <laughs> bought it and you're, mm-hmm. and, and you, you had the good resources to help you figure out sort of some supply chain parts of sure. this and like logistics sure. parts of it and, and, you know, sort of like the Kafka-esque part of all of it. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but you also then had to like figure out, was there a market for it or were you selling it to buy right? Or were you going to sell it to chefs? Were you going to sell it yeah. online? How did you think about designing? Did you, did you look at like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause I mean, I think of things in, in like a little, I, I kind of think of them linearly in a way, but then it circles back. Um, so I always think about sort of, you know, supply chain and making the thing and who's making it and why are you making it and how are you making it? And then where is it getting, how is it getting there? Who's in charge of getting it there? You know, and then right. it kind of moves along through sort of the end consumer which then kind mm-hmm. of then goes back. Um, but in that, in all of those sort of lines along the way is, uh, you know, creating a company, m- making a, a, a strategy, making a marketing plan, figuring out who you're selling to, mm-hmm. making a logo, all of that stuff. Like you, <laughs> that's what you did between February and August. Yeah, in in part, I think I did a lot of it in August. If I'm being honest, um, <laughs> because because February through August was was I mean becoming an export company in India, an import company here, um, right. that's not easy. Just the export company part took yeah. me about six months, um, and and getting a warehouse and getting all of that sorted out with no experience and repeatedly being asked, you know, is this your dad's business? Like, mm-hmm. where's the CEO? Yeah, um, so. I, to all the founders out there, like I did not have a marketing plan. I I happen to be very intuitively good at marketing. I think that's a strength of mine. Sourcing and marketing are my two things. Um, My first hire before I did anything else was hiring a a graphic designer. And Mm -hmm. I hired um, my actually my former work wife at Byright where I was like, you come over and do this for me. I need you. Um, And she she put together what has been our brand brand identity to this day in I think one week. And it's beautiful, um, by the way, if anyone you. can just go on Diaspora Co. I mean, it's it's perfect. Like it's, and and it's, I think that speaks to me and Sophie, yeah. Sophie Peoples is the designer who did all of our branding. And that speaks to our relationship and the fact that we already had, you know, a visual language between ourselves. Right. Um, but it also spoke to the fact that I already knew that I wanted our logo to be a marigold. I already like, yep. those were things that I had in me because I'd yep. seen and watched brands for so long yep. that when the time came, it just came out. Yeah. Um, and in, in terms of sales and who I would sell to, I, I had this hunch that I was like, maybe I'll sell to 10 chefs, you know? Mm-hmm. And That'll be it. And I had also talked to John Beaver of Oaktown Spice, which here in the Bay Area is definitely the biggest spice shop um, around. Okay. And uh, he had said, hey, I don't know anything about the Indian spice trade when I had asked him for help. But if right. you find anything, let me know and I'll buy it from you. And I was like, buy right. it for me. I'm just doing research. Right. <laughs> um, and sure enough, I wrote him you know, a few months later and said, do you want to buy this? And without even trying it, he said, absolutely, send me 50 pounds. Amazing. Um, Amazing. So, and so that's when 350 yeah. kilograms we, we sold in 
a few hours uh, upon launch. And that's, I mean... And has it been kind of going in that direction since? I we we've I know been, Matt gave me like for three months. <laughs> you what? You've been sold out. We've been sold out for three months. So okay. yeah, it just it keeps going. And and you've added more spices to the to the lineup. Yes. Yeah, I spent about fourteen months sourcing a pesticide free cardamom. Wow. Um, so we added that on last summer, and then we added on a um, guntur sanam chili, which is like a hotter than a paprika, beautiful fruity chili mm. powder and whole um, in the fall. And then we added on a really wonderful fruity peppercorn that has like, it, it's really like complex wine. Yeah. Um, in terms of tasting notes, um, right in time for Christmas. Amazing. And now we've been able to buy out the harvests of all four of those farmers for this year. So. Amazing. That's so Amanda's amazing. Yeah. I am like, you describe them very, you do have a little marketing because I'm like going online the minute that we hang up. All right, Matt, I know I've gone over a couple of weeks in a row and he doesn't like it when I do that. So I will be respectful. Last question. Uh What do you wish you had known? Mm. I wish I had known my power Mm -hmm. and I wish I hadn't um, maybe taken so much. Like, I think I believed that I was so lucky to be given the opportunities that I was in terms of media, in terms of partnerships. Um, and I wasn't more selective because I felt like I had mm-hmm. no choice. I just, had yes. to, I just had to say yes to anybody that was giving me time of day. Yeah. Um, and I wish I had known that more and better will come. Yeah. And you don't have to say yes to anybody that like, you know, says, says hello to you. Yep. You know um, what? And that goes back honestly to what we talked about at the very beginning you know, hold who you are. And there, you know, people, I remember when I first opened Haven's Kitchen, someone said, everyone's going to be calling because they're going to want to be doing all sorts of things. And you're going to be so flattered and excited that anyone even knows who the heck you are, that you're going to give more away than you're going to get. And it's really true. We did like free weddings for like, you know, I mean, like, you know, you signed up for like this tabling at this thing and, and right. no one's paying you and somehow right. you're supposed to feel lucky that you're there. Um, Absolutely. And I think that it goes to investors and stores just because a store wants to stock you doesn't mean it's the right store for your product, all of it. And holding on to that, I think is great, great advice. More and better will come. That's <laughs> great. Um Sana, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sorry we could talk probably for another, you know, Hour several hours. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I'm thrilled that you were here. I'm so excited for you. You're doing something important and beautiful and also delicious. Uh, diaspora.co. No, diasporaco.com. And on Instagram. Uh, just diaspora co. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, check check it out, founders. Thank you so um, much for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming, Matt. Thank you. Good time, right? Thanks, so Matt. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed with your all right, all right, <laughs> all right. Thanks. Yeah, this is my little insecurity coming out. All right, Sana, thank you. Uh, Listeners, I'll be back with another episode of In the Sauce. Everybody, stay healthy and um, sending out lots of love and good 
just vibes. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.